In verse 8 of Job 27, it says, For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? The hope of the hypocrite shall perish. That's what this text is saying. What is the hope? And I want you to notice that even hypocrites have hope. We'll talk about this. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? I'm going back many decades ago before God brought my family and I here to upstate New York when I was pastoring in the Bronx. I do remember it was a Wednesday night. I went into my office. There was a message on my answering machine from a woman who at that time was in the church, and she was pretty upset. You could tell by her voice on the answering machine. She had an emergency, she said, and the emergency that she announced was that her dog was dying, and she was very upset about this, and asked me, would I pray? Now, it's Wednesday night. I'm getting prepared to go out and teach. So I actually, believe it or not, not only prayed, but I actually got on my knees and prayed. The truth. Well, the dog passed away. And uh, just as a parenthetical statement, let me just please say to you, I understand from talking to some of you that you have a belief that you're going to see your pets in heaven. And I'm not here to disturb that belief. I've had some great dogs, all of them German shepherds. But whether I'm going to meet them in heaven or not, I don't know. And frankly, they wouldn't be first on my list of people I want to meet when I go to heaven. But anyway, I'm not here to upset your belief. I'm just here to state this woman called in with an emergency that her dog was dying. And I do get it. I've had to put down a few of my dogs. It's not an easy thing with your cat. It's not an easy thing to do. So I was fine with that. But from there, it just began to escalate. The next installment was I got a phone call from another woman in the church. Pastor, we need to start an emergency prayer line. And I said, well, you know, that's a good idea. And she said, you know, because this incident that happened with her, and she named the person, you know, was never addressed. Now, again, for all of you who are animal lovers, and I'm one, I've had seven German shepherds. I have one now. I have to tell you as a pastor that that does not constitute a need for an emergency prayer chain for your pet. If you disagree with me, that's fine. It wouldn't be the first time. People are the object of preaching and teaching and so forth. Do I pray for? I've prayed for horses. I've prayed for cats. I prayed for dogs, so I'm not saying not to pray. I'm just saying that this could not be the impetus for starting an emergency, key word is emergency, prayer meeting. But I wasn't against the idea, so I said, well, all right, you know, get it together. But then there was the next call that was the coup de grace. This is going on for days. The husband of this woman called me up, and he was very upset that I, A, I hadn't visited the house after the dog died. Didn't reach out to his wife after the dog died. You have to understand something that you're never going to see. In the last two weeks alone, I've dealt with two cases of rape. Not here in the church, but with people just writing to me. Suicide. Get a message this week of someone who's suicidal. And all. This is what I deal with. And I deal with it a lot. So you have to understand that when I, and this is even back in the Bronx, when someone calls me up and states this, you know, he's complaining that I didn't take care of his wife. And that I am, he said, because you're a hypocrite. I said, in what respect a hypocrite? He said, you preach one thing, you live something else. Now, again, I'm stepping on a few toes here, I know, because you love your dog. I love my dog. I love them all. Very difficult, difficult to put them down. But to call a preacher a hypocrite because he didn't make a visitation to the house because the dog died, when you got people who are being raped, people who are suicidal, they come first. People come first. It's just that simple. And you're talking to a dog lover. Honestly, 
And so I want to just announce to you, that's all. The worst thing that could ever be said of me is that I'm a hypocrite. I'm loyal. I do my duty. There's things I simply don't do because they're wrong. End of story. When this man said this to me, it really <laughs> lit a fire in me. I know what I wanted to tell him, but I never did, and to this day I haven't. Anyway, he called me a hypocrite. I preach one thing. I don't recall I've ever preached a message on animals. You preach one thing, you live something else. Welcome to my world. And as a minister, as a preacher, you have to expect the antagonism of Satan. It seems as though he doesn't rest. I don't know if he does. And the strangest things can happen. But for me, as a person, the worst thing that anyone could say about me is that he's a hypocrite. Because I'm not. Now, I am a flawed man, that's for sure. Not a perfect man, that's guaranteed. But I'm not a hypocrite. And I never will be. But here's the thing. Our text says that the hope of the hypocrite shall be cut off when God takes away his soul. So we would want to know, what is a hypocrite? Well, when we go into the New Testament definition, we come across a Greek word. As you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written almost exclusively in Hebrew with some little portions in Aramaic. But we find the word hypocrites is the underlying Greek word for our English word hypocrite. What is a hypocrites? Well, I'm sure that you've seen these masks that actors wore for many, many years in theater. And they even had a mechanism with the mouth to augment the voice, whereas today, of course, we've got technology. And the word came to represent someone who is a pretender, which, by the way, is just as a comment, when actors give us their political opinion, as Americans, they're entitled to an opinion. But I am uncertain why any actor would want to think that their opinion is better than mine or yours, because they've spent their whole life pretending. And I happen to like, well, older movies. I happen to like movies, older movies. I don't watch the modern stuff. And I have my favorite actors. <laughs> but I always remember that they're acting. For example, if you didn't know this, John Wayne was never a cowboy. <laughs> now, you need to know this. He pretended to be a cowboy. When George C. Scott played George Patton, the general, his portrayal of Patton was so well, well, he was awarded the Academy Award. Now you identify George C. Scott as being General Patton, but he's not. He was pretending to be General Patton, and you get the idea. The actors are pretenders. Hippocrates, where we get our English word a hypocrite. Now, we're not going to apply the word hypocrite to an actor because that's what their profession is. They're not telling you, I am this person. But when someone says, I am a Christian, when they're really not, the serious matter, because they're pretending. If you look back in Job, same book, chapter 8, you'll see another verse that deals with the word hypocrite. And it's in verse 13. In Job, chapter 8, verse 13, it says this, So are the paths of all that forget God. Is it possible to forget God? Many, many people do and have already forgotten God. But that doesn't mean they stop going to church meetings. It may not even mean they stop reading their Bible. But they have forgotten God. And the hypocrite's hope shall perish. It's the same exact theme. Both times. The hope of the hypocrite shall be cut off. Now, I want to distinguish the difference between a hypocrite and an unbeliever. Which I think should be self-explanatory. 
But let's go through it anyway. Someone who is an unbeliever simply does not believe what the Bible says. That's not a hypocrite. And again, the word believer, if you just think it through, like the songs that we sing, if you think them through, if you think about the word believer, that is also a self-evident term. You believe what the Bible says. And when you believe, your behavior portrays that belief. Let's go the other way as well. Someone who does not believe, their behavior betrays that unbelief. But neither one are hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who is pretending. And Jesus taught us and told us, they shall be, false teachers shall be known by their fruits. That means their behavior. It means the things they do, the things they don't do. And you need to know the sternest warnings and castigations that Jesus ever gave were never for the downtrodden and the struggling people who did believe in God and struggled with sin. We had words for them, but mostly what we see in the life of Christ is mercy, invitation to come to him, receive you know, forgiveness and so on. But for those who were pretenders, and especially in religious leadership, he had some of his harshest remarks. So you should understand that there's a difference between an unbeliever, someone who just discards the Bible. A believer is, again, a self-evident term, if you just think it through. A hypocrite is different. They are pretending to be what they are not. They are actors. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. We're told, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is someone who doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe in the doctrines of the Bible, and so on. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Uh, just quickly, this is a bit of a problem in the church in this day, and it always has been. When someone who is truly a believer in Christ decides to marry someone who is not a believer in Christ, I think it's mostly, if I may say so, women who fall in love with a man more so than the other way around. And the idea that some women have is that he'll change once we get married, which means they're on a mission. They're getting married as a missionary. And my answer is that you're right, he is going to change. He'll get worse. And you always remember this, it is much easier for someone who's in a down position that you're trying to help up to pull you down than it is for you to pull them up. So here the Bible tells us that there is nothing in common between those who do believe the word of God and of course act on it, behave, and those that do not. Now just quickly, what happens when you're converted after you were married and you know when you both got married you were unbelievers or not real Christians? That's a different set of circumstances. To that the Bible says stay in your marriage. You stay in your marriage because you started out on the same foundation, no belief in God or what could I say, a very loose belief in God. And then you get converted and your partner does not and some never do. It creates issues. But the Bible says you stay in your marriage. So Hippocrates, an actor, you want to ask yourself the question, am I a pretender or a contender? Many people, and they have for centuries, through the Old and New Testaments, want to be associated with the one true God, but not necessarily to obey him. 
but they want the benefits of the assurance that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. While they're on earth, God is going to provide, as I just read briefly to you about financial giving and prayer and other things, but they don't want to comply with what the book says. That, my friend, is an actor. It's a pretender. And it's easy to pretend when you're in any group at all. Chameleons do it all the time. They change color according to the circumstance. But to be a real contender and not a pretender means you're willing at all costs to stand alone if that's what it takes. And in some cases, some of you would already know this in your own home. You may be the only person that's the true believer in Christ. And you take a lot of flack for it. But be prepared, all of you be prepared. There's a certain measure, I think only known to God, by every individual that they're going to have a measure of persecution or suffering of some sort when it comes to their dedication to Christ. In 1835, a man went to Florence, lived in Florence, was in Florence, Italy, and he paid a visit to a physician and he registered with the doctor his complaints. Insomnia, anxiety, depression, couldn't eat, didn't want to be with his friends. The doctor examined him, couldn't find anything wrong with him at all. As a matter of fact, he was in prime physical condition. And for those of you who know, these are the classic symptoms of depression. Anyway, this is 1835. The doctor says, I can't find anything wrong with you at all. Now, in 1835, entertainment wasn't what it is today. And so they had circuses. And I guess we still have them to some degree, but they're not as popular as they used to be. Because our circuses are not as sophisticated as the type of entertainment that Americans want. Or people around the world want. But in those days, it was entertainment. And the doctor's advice to this man, he said, you know, there's nothing really wrong with you. You know, you need to laugh a little bit and to enjoy a little bit of life. He says, as a matter of fact, the circus is in town and they have this great clown. He's just bringing so much joy and laughter into people's lives and they love him. And so he advised him, the doctor advised this man to go down and see the circus and pay attention to the clown Grimaldi. He will do wonders for your health. And then the man replied, he said, please, please, he cannot help me. I am Grimaldi. <laughs> now, this better illustrates what depression can do than perhaps how I'm applying it. But what Grimaldi had learned to do, and again, many actors in Hollywood have done the exact same thing. We see them on the screen. You see them in an interview. Preachers do the same thing. Shirt and tie, well, they don't wear shirts and ties so much anymore. But they're dressed and kempt and clean and whatever. And so the assumption is, here's the person that's got it all together. But behind the scenes, there's often a dark cloud that surrounds so many of these people. And I'm pointing out this as an illustration of you can pretend you're happy when you're not. You can pretend you have joy. I remember watching the preacher some years back and how they started off their song service. He would cheerlead his congregation. Come on, where's your joy? And he just start jumping up and down. The same way an aerobics instructor would start a class. And then everybody just start jumping around and that was to be joy. Well, it's not joy. It's a contrivance. And what I'm sharing with you is this, that you can pretend to be happy. You can pretend to be holy. You can pretend to be a lot of things, but there's a difference between a pretender and a contender. Someone who is the real thing. If you are the real thing, both in Christ or in any other area of life, 
You recognize the real thing in other people. But if you are the real thing in Christ or in any other area of life and you meet a pretender, you know when they're pretending. You know when they don't know what they're talking about. And so, as I mentioned, Jesus' harshest words were for the religious leaders of his day. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. We'll go through just a few of these verses where Jesus, right before, or shortly before he went to the cross, spoke to the religious leaders of his day. And I want to preface this as you're turning, that not much has changed. In fact, nothing has changed since this time. Except that we could take out the words scribe and Pharisee and put in the titles and names of people in all the denominations. All of them in the world. Matthew 23, 13. But woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, pretenders. Listen to this now, read it. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. What is he saying? He's saying this, that the very last place that you or I would expect someone to be locking the gate to eternal life will be the one holding a Bible. The one saying, this is my Bible, and all of these things. You need to read it. But Jesus says, and I'm paraphrasing for you, Jesus says you teach and you preach and you're keeping people out of heaven and you're not going to heaven because they were pretenders. Same chapter, verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at this here. For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. The last person you expect to rip you off is the preacher. And again, I'll just say this very quickly. How many people across this country and other countries are getting ripped off by the very preachers they trust? And they don't know it because of the pretense of both preaching and prayer. Lord bless these people. And all the time they're just ripping you off. I'm still angry at the guy that came and ripped me off here a few months back. At least he wasn't a religious leader. Look at verse 15. This is important as well. Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye compass sea and land... You go overseas to make one proselyte, one convert. And when he, listen to this, this is Jesus. When he is made, you make him twofold, more the child of hell than yourselves. Wow. What does that mean? It means the religious leaders of Jesus, they knew how to evangelize. They knew how to hand out tracts, so to speak. They knew how to stand on a street corner and preach to others. And then shut them out of the kingdom because of the fact that they were pretenders. They were actors. They were acting the part of a religious leader for whom I may say, and I think many of you would agree with me, how sorely disappointed so many of us have been over the years, for those of us who have been around for years, who actually looked up to, admired, or at least listened to high-profile preachers that one day to discover it's a pretense. Who's with the prostitute or who's been caught? There's a very well-known pastor had at one time, and it may still be, the largest congregation in the world. He had well over a million plus members in one church. And he went to jail, not in America, but in another country, for stealing the money of the church. You don't expect that. They were evangelizing, but no one was truly saved because they were pretenders. What about their financial giving down to verse 23? 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye paid tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done, and not to leave the other undone. So he wasn't saying that the tithing was wrong. Just the more important parts of the Bible, they were omitting and violating and so on. Verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whited sepulchers, like a really nice gravestone or a mausoleum, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Let me just share this with you as a bit of wisdom. Satan works from the outside in. His object is to bind you in here, in your thinking. That's why, no matter where I go, even the different subjects I talk about with people, I always say everything is won or lost right here, in your thinking. You have to win the battle for the mind. And Satan works against or through your flesh to get you captive on the inside. It doesn't matter if I've dealt with this so many times. With fear, hatred, and envy, and anger, and all these things. He works this way out. God works the opposite way. He works through the inside and then outward. When you have the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has you, it's evident this way. And when Satan has you, he's worked this way and is just as evident if you really know how to measure things. I have been kept, I've shared this with you so often, I have been kept from many things I could have done and no doubt would have done. And there's one thing that has kept me, the fear of the Lord. Because I know that whatever you sow, eventually you are going to reap it. I know this. I'll tell you a story. I gave up drinking a long, long time ago. I have no use for it at all. Not even in small quantities. Gave it up a long, long time ago. When my wife and I were on our honeymoon, so it's going back a long time ago now, I had become a Christian. Everybody in the neighborhood was talking about the big change. And we were 500 miles from New York in Bermuda. And we met a couple, they were newlyweds also, and they were gonna go to a club, some nightclub. My wife and said, you know, you want to go with them? And I really didn't want to go. I have my original guitar. This is not it. I have my original guitar. When I gave up playing secular music, I anointed it, gave it to God, said, from now on, I play my music for you. You know what really inspired that? Was being out one night playing music and singing. And it was around 11, maybe closer to 12. And everybody's drunk. And I realized they were singing to the songs that I was, they were dancing rather to the songs I was singing. That was the tipping point for me. I was sick of it all. Anyway, against my intuition, I rationalized. Now listen to me carefully. I rationalized. All right, I'm 500 miles from home. What's it gonna hurt one night to be in the nightclub? That's all I intended to do. So we're out with this couple, and the waitress came around, and before you know it, I'm ordering myself a beer. Now you have to understand what went along with my lifestyle back then was drinking. And when I was drinking, it was not the person you want to run into. I wasn't, well, let's say, a happy drunk. But anyway, everybody knew that I gave up all that. I was secure in the knowledge that I'm so far away from home, nobody can see me. And I only had one beer. I'm sitting there. Frankly, I wasn't even enjoying much of the music. It was just something to do. We're on our honeymoon. All of a sudden, I get a tap on the shoulder. Now, who in the world is going to be tapping me on the shoulder 500 miles from my house? I turned around, and it was the sister of a best friend of mine, another woman. <laughs> And she, she proposed a question. She said, wow, I didn't expect to find you here. I thought you changed. Do you realize that God rules the whole earth? Yeah. 
You could go down 500 miles in a cave and be found out. Because whatever you sow, you will eventually reap it. It'll show in your conduct. It'll show in your countenance. It'll show in your speech. But even if none of those things come to pass where people can see it, it's in here. It's in here. It's in the mind. Just an illustration. And so we have all of these woes of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. And all of them directed at people who professed not only that they knew God, but we are the leaders of the people of God. You learn from us. And there's more that Jesus had to say to them too. But it all boils down to this topic. The hope of the hypocrite shall be cut off. Come with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. We go through this verse every so often, but I think it's, it's good to review it now. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. Notice the emphasis is doing before it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heard these sayings of mine, hear them, read them, go over them, listen to them on the radio, but doesn't do them, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. In other words, hearing the Bible, which does bring faith as we read, but not doing what it says, your house is built on sand and it will fall. It's just a matter of time or a matter of when or where. Rain descended, floods came, winds blew, beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I have a shirt. Sometimes people who have businesses, you know, I'll say, hey, you want me to advertise for your business? Send me a t-shirt. And I wear them. The back of this shirt says, attack proof, based on the philosophy of the martial arts that my friend teaches. It says, attack proof. So I was saying to somebody one day, as we were talking about man things, I said, you see the back of my shirt? I am attack proof. For which being uh, in special forces his entire career, he just started to laugh. <laughs> of course I'm not attack proof, especially if I have it on my back. It's analogous to what Jesus is saying here. If you are a contender, you have the real deal, truly born again, truly belong to Christ, your house will never fall. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church Amen. and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But if there's no compliance, as my dad used to always say, all bets are off. You know that I have accented this statement over the years. If you have a false Jesus, you have a false heaven, meaning you have a false hope. We find also in the book of Job, chapter 13, at verse 16, Job says, He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. A hypocrite shall not come before him. A pretender. So the Bible is very clear on this subject. Pretending is not only useless, but if you attach a hope to pretending, it's going to be cut off. The ending will not be well. And let me say this too, remind you of this. Some who actually read the Bible, I mean, they read it carefully. If you really get it, you start to say to yourself, this is a hard way. But remember this, the way of the transgressor is hard. So what we have in this life is two ways, both of which are hard. 
See, Satan will say, don't go Jesus' way. Go this way, it's a lot easier. Until all of a sudden you find yourself all wrapped up in all types of problems, including the increase that we're seeing in anxiety and depression and mental health. I tried to get someone an appointment to see a counselor not that long ago. Their waiting list for counseling was up to over one year. They're jammed. People are really suffering. And I'm not going to say, well, that's all because they're all in sin. But I am going to say that if you're not going to follow the ways of Christ, remember Jesus said, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. That is dependent on following his instructions and doing what he says. And then you find out that the ground you're building your life on is the ground of the word of God and the ground of Jesus Christ. And when the storms come, yeah, you feel the storms and you feel the rain and you feel the wind. But you stand, Ephesians 6. You're still standing. As you know, I've been through a lot of things, my wife included, but I'm still standing. Why? Because God is holding me up, not because I'm holding me up. Because God is holding me up, and he's holding you up. But if you're under a pretense, you are circling the drain, ever so slowly perhaps, but you're circling the drain. One of the reasons I find it easier to forgive is based on this verse. Give place to vengeance. I want to do things my way with quite a lot of people. But God says, give place to vengeance, for vengeance is mine, I will repay. You leave that in the hands of God, because pretenders will circle the drain slowly and surely, and they will reap what they have sown. You want to be able to sow good things, and therefore reap good things, and therefore give evidence of a true conversion, which means good things for you in this life, and in the next. I shared with a friend of mine just a few nights ago, less than 48 hours ago. If I did not have this Bible to filter my mind through and filter my thoughts through, I would not be able to get up in the morning and make sense of this world. It's chaotic, it's confusing, it's violent, it's a lot of things. 2004, one of the greatest Christian writers of our time wrote many, many great songs. They're still great songs announced to his family the day after Christmas that he was gay and that he had to follow the way God had made him. And so he divorced his wife, and now he's married to a man who he calls his husband. These are the things that shock us. These are the things that surprise us, discourage us. But let me tell you this. I have so little faith in what is known as Christianity, including some of the great authors, great as far as they publish a lot of books today, but I have complete trust in Christ. Follow Christ. Where you'll find him is in this book. Follow him. He will never let you down. Christ has never let me down. Amen. Never. He's never let me down. So when someone comes out and announces that they're gay and they're leaving their family, which in my mind made it all more difficult to swallow. This is going back 20 years now. That his wife was supportive and his family was supportive. It gives us pause. To say, why in the world would I want to go to church and be a Christian? I mean, how do you really know what a Christian is? Nobody knows. Nobody really knows. So it goes on and on and on. But there is one who does know what it means to be a Christian. And his name is Jesus. Amen. Jesus knows. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi... 
We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. Let me just stop there for a second, so I don't forget. When a man comes out and says, I'm going to be the way God made me, it does not refer to this verse. You must be born again. For example, you know, with these uh, fMRI images and so on, functional magnetic resonance images and so on, they can say, well, we see here, you know, and the brain is showing us uh, propensity towards addiction and other things. That's the natural brain in a natural body. Jesus said you must be born from on high, which is what those words mean. You have to have a second birth, which I'm going to show you is different than the first. Except a man be born from on high, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? He's completely confused. And be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born from on high. You must be born again. Whatever you may say God made you, from the least little thing to anything else, that's the first birth. The second birth has absolutely nothing to do with the first birth. You must be born again. You must be born from on high. And here's where it starts. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Jesus is beginning his ministry. And he says this, Now after that John was put in prison... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent. The Greek word means to turn, to turn the mind. So here I am walking this way in the world, somewhat enjoying myself. Most times I wasn't, just like you. We brag and we talk and we put a smile on and we talk about what we did the night before. Then when you're home, this was my case, I'd be weeping. I was so depressed. But you put on a pretense. Repentance is to turn and to pursue Christ. In that book, by those commandments, and not the commandments of men, unless they match what this says. In either case, it would be still the commandments of God. Repentance begins the process. And you can read it, and we don't have time to read through all these verses of Romans 6 and Romans 8. And Galatians 2, but I'll quote that one for you, 19 and 20. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I may live unto God, for I am crucified with Christ. And there's the answer. I'm going to be what God made me to be. God made me, if I could put it on God, God made me to be an angry Christian. Well, you say, well, God made me to be a womanizing Christian. So we have a church just for womanizers. So we can identify with each other. What are you talking about? A murdering Christian? A rapist Christian? They don't exist. It's a myth. You must be born again. And you turn from the old life and everything that belongs to it. That's the process. If I was pinned to this cross right now, to illustrate, if I was nailed to this cross, which is what the Apostle Paul is saying, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God, for I am crucified with Christ. If I was physically nailed to this cross right now, you tell me what crime can I commit? Adultery? Lying, stealing, I can't do anything, especially when I just passed away. Jesus talked about the crucified life. 
I am a bit confused when I read people who are trying to justify the things they're doing, saying, God made me this way, God made me that way. I would have to say God made me to be an angry and sometimes aggressive individual. That's not true. That's what sin made me. In any case, if I am crucified with Christ, read Romans 6, read Romans 8, read Galatians 2, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. When you're crucified with Christ, that is the evidence that you're now walking in the Spirit. Is it easy? It's not easy. No, it's not easy. But honestly, is anything in this life easy that's worth really, I mean, any accomplishment? Real accomplishment? I could walk into Juilliard, as you know, famous school of music. No, I'll give you a real example. I had a friend who did walk into Juilliard. He was an unbelievable drummer, excellent drummer, but he couldn't read. Back in those days, drummers didn't ordinarily read music. Today, they read more than they did. And so what he did is he had memorized the piece that they had given him for the audition to get into Juilliard. So he got up and he played his piece, but a little turn of the page threw him off. He didn't expect that, and all of a sudden he was lost. He couldn't play the score. So he never made it into Juilliard because he was pretending. And so they picked up on his pretense by simply turning the page and putting a new score, which and he couldn't read it. He was a fantastic drummer. To the day he died, he was a, really a world-class drummer, but he never went to Juilliard. Never got in because he was pretending to be something he was not. And I think that that analogy would hold to reading the Bible. Church, do you read your Bible? Yes, I read my Bible. That really is maybe the first part of a two-part question. And then do you do what you're reading? Oh, that's hard. Oh, yeah, that's hard. Crucifixion. Study it again. I gave it to you on Good Friday. It's not an easy life, but it leads to eternal life, or we're given eternal life, and it leads us to the kingdom. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. Let me read this to you before I finish today. About walking in the spirit. Being born again means you're not living the life you used to live in the flesh. This is how God made me. Well, that's a debatable point to begin with. But even if he did, he said, be born again. And walk in the Spirit. And I'm going to give this to you, these verses. You can read it along with me if you like in the Bible, but I'm giving it to you in commentary form. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Listen, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, that's how God made you. Well, God didn't make you that way, but man is sinful. The results are very clear. Remember, this is commentary. The results are clear when you're following this thing that we call the flesh. The Bible calls the flesh. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Could have been any clearer. You understand that I continue to say, read the text for yourself. Now listen. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. So think about a crucifixion. People die. If we crucified thieves and murderers and stuff, we wouldn't have to think about them murdering or stealing anymore. Why? Only one reason. Did they become good people? No. They became dead people. And the cemeteries that surround us here 
We do not go past them wondering if you're going to get robbed or something's going to be done or they're going to get murdered because they're all dead. And the Bible says, and you can read it again, Romans chapter 6, the whole chapter, Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter, and it says that we are dead in Christ to what we used to be by sinful nature. And now we have been born again. And for the life of me, I don't know why this confuses people. It's so simple to understand. Not easy to live, but simple to understand. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means that we are now following the life that Christ made for us. William Booth, who is the founder of the Salvation Army, has something that turned out to be very prophetic. And he saw something, as others did too, Spurgeon and many others, in the 19th century. And he said this, the chief danger of the 20th century, now we're in the 21st, the chief danger of the 20th century will be, listen carefully, will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics, this is 1800s, in England, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Let me tell you, an old parable, not Christian necessarily, but it has application. An old parable about a king who had this very vast kingdom. He had the reputation of being very mighty, but also very wise and loving. They followed him for this reason. Now, as the parable goes and the story goes, one night, a witch came and took the one central drinking source that this kingdom had, a crystalline, exceptionally pure source of water that everybody drank from, and poisoned it. And what was in the poison would make people mad or psychotic. And one by one, all the citizens of the kingdom started drinking from the well and started losing their minds. However, there had been a watchman who went and told the king what had happened, how the well had been poisoned. So he never drank from it. And little by little, the people kept looking at the king. They said, the king has lost his mind. He's lost his sense of reason. Remember, they were the ones that drank from the well. And he wouldn't because it was poisoned. So now they decided to overthrow the king. And certainly he was outnumbered. And he had a choice to make. He could either fight, which would have been useless because the entire kingdom had lost its mind. And it appeared that it was the king who had lost his mind. Second choice would just simply drink from the well like everybody else. And that was the choice he made. As soon as he started drinking from the well, he lost his mind. And all the people were satisfied. The king has come back to his right mind. When the truth was, they all had come under a strong delusion. The book says that because they did not love righteousness, God shall send them a strong delusion. For the hope of the hypocrite shall be cut off. A hope of seeing God. A hope of going to heaven. A hope of a blissful afterlife. And Jesus and Job and the prophets and the apostles said, not so. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. Listen, you read it in James chapter 1. Deceiving yourself. If I were to deceive you, which is not, again, one of my proclivities... I hate manipulation. I hate it in every form. I hate it if a salesman, I, even though I know they're trying to make a living, is trying to do it to me, and I never do it to people. But Satan is different, and false teachers and false prophets are different, and they want you to drink from a well that has been poisoned so that you will come to see the truth, which in the end is a lie. Father, John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Do you realize, going back as far as the 14th, well, 15th century, 
No church, Christians didn't have this book. Now you have it. You can read it as often as you want, as much as you want, or you can do as Spurgeon said, that the dust on some people's Bible is so thick you can write damnation on it with your finger. But at the end, there'll be no excuse for any of us. No. So we don't want our hope to be cut off. We want our hope to be real. Let them laugh. Let them say, oh, you know, we'll straighten out this world. So far, so good. Next election, that's going to straighten everything out. Uh huh. Let them laugh when they say the only solution is the signs that we see indicating Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and set up his kingdom. Let them laugh. Just don't drink from the poison well. Drink from the pure word of God. And that's what this book says. That we're looking for the appearance of the blessed God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, we walk in the truth. And I think at times we've all done this. But here's the question. How many times in your life have you just simply gone along with people or events or whatever? Because to not go along is going to be difficult. How many times have you chose comfort over either truth or discipline? And I believe we've all done it at times. But the time has come, again, to use the illustration of the king and the poison well. And say, if everybody drinks from that well, I am not drinking from that well. If everybody says that I'm the one that's crazy. And that, by the way, one of the Hebrew words for prophet means, or can mean, a madman. They thought the prophets were crazy. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and take in this city. They laughed at Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah, they sawed him in half. Jeremiah eventually got murdered as well. But they never drank from the poison well. They stayed with the pure words of God. So let's just take a little time, just a minute or so, just for some inventory. How often are you choosing comfort over doing the right thing? And if it's a regular habit, that's a habit you want to break. Like I said, we're all weak. I mean, we all make mistakes. We all have our moments. I've done it many times myself. The easiest thing is just whatever. But there's times when you have to just take a stand. And if everybody in your family, everybody in your neighborhood, your community, or if your country says you're crazy, I'd say not according to this book. This is the pure well. Father, we come to you this morning, and we are praying, and many, many people in America and around the world are praying for revivals, not only in America, but in their own nation. But we're asking today, God, that you would make it to be a pure one. I'm sure Satan is going to come in as he does for every revival and mix in all kinds of errors and eccentricities and whatever else, but help us here not to compromise. Help us to simply just live in the book, be humble, average individuals, to take a stand, draw a line in the sand, and not live as an actor or as a pretender. Your word tells us that the love of the brethren should not be in pretense. Help us to have more fear of you than we do of any living man or woman. Give us the grace to be able to pay the price, and in the end, know that we did the right thing. God, I ask you to pour out your spirit on your people sitting here, listening by the live streaming, listening by the way of the radio. Pour out your spirit in this age and in this time and in this day. Help us, God. We need your aid in this hour. We need your help in this hour. I'm just going to ask you one last thing before we finish. Right where you're seated right now. Again, I think that we all are prone to some measures of compromise. But if you know in your heart that your life has been compromised... And maybe you're not the adulterer. Those are the sins that we see, you know, and these womenizers and all these other people that we criticize. But you're not doing your job. You're not being the real deal. Start with loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving the brethren. Two great commandments. I just ask you just to take a minute to examine your heart. Let's not offer God any more excuses. 
but our very best effort given to us by the grace of God. Our very best effort. Your very best effort is not going to be perfect. Just make sure it's your very best. And when you do, God will certainly be gracious, certainly be merciful, certainly be kind, and he will lift you up. So God, we end this Sabbath day message with this prayer once again. Fill us with your spirit. Let us not have Christianity without Christ, religion without the Holy Spirit, forgiveness without repentance and turning from that which is clearly stated that is wrong and so on, as we heard from William Booth. But help us, God, to be contenders. Bless our fellowship and time we have together. Let us exhibit by your grace the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. Help us, God, for without you we can do nothing. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. From the time we get up to the time we go to bed, the Lord's name is to be praised. Let's put that to practice today and worry about tomorrow. Jesus said not to. Father, bless your name. You are certainly great and greatly to be praised. Help us, Lord, to take consolation, as you told us in 1 Thessalonians, that your coming is very near. And help us, God, once again to be contenders, even again as we're exhorted to do in the short epistle of Jude. Bless what we're about to eat, the words that come out of our mouth, and help us to be able by your spirit to put the shine back on one another and be encouraged. I pray all this today. In Jesus' name, can you say amen with me today? Amen. Amen.